I never thought about how until I was here. Having got here, it suits me in, in many ways. It is a little on the, on the edge of things. I think even its natives would say that. A cut price crowd, urban yet simple, dwelling where only salesmen and relations come. And across there, over the estuary of the Humber, is Yorkshire, and you can just see Hull where Philip Larkin lives. It's a place of thunder, clouds, dark red brick Georgian streets where they survive, and steeples and domes. And beyond Hull was the North Sea. If anywhere's the end of England and the end of land, it's Hull and beyond Hull. Welcome to the podcast. It's a podcast about the culture of Hull, what we do and who we are. Welcome back. Hey, it's summer. Hooray. Uh, Now, today we've got a fab conversation with Dave Windass. But before that, have a listen to this. Hey, that costs ten a quart. You don't think I'd drink with you, you son. Why not? You don't know? You mean because I found out what you was doing? On the level, I never figured you'd wind up like this. Where else would I wind up after the deal I got from you? Ah, that's all forgotten. Yeah? Come on. Cut that out. Oh, baby. You heard me. Cut it out. You're the one man I'm drawing the line at. The woman in that clip is Dorothy McHale. She was a huge Hollywood star in the golden age of the silver screen, the 1920s and early 30s. And she was born and raised in Hull, at 15 Newstead Street off Chance Ave, about 200 metres from this very microphone. Her story is pure movie legend, and one of Hull's newest companies, Smashing Mirrors, is going to be telling that remarkable tale this week, in the lounge bar venue at Hull New Theatre. I went to speak to the director and company founder, Elizabeth Godber. You formed Smashing Mirrors in 2017? Yeah, 2017, yeah. And how did you get together and why did you get together? So it was part of me, um, I was doing a master's degree at Leeds Uni. I'm yeah. still living in Hull, but mm-hmm. I'm commuting. And for my final project, you had to write a show. Um, and I decided I would stage the show mm-hmm. as well. And it was about um, mental health at university and loneliness at university. And I was just kind of thought, well, I need to form a company. So the company was kind of me <laughs> um, to start with. So I got some actors together. We went to Edinburgh Festival, did the show. We brought it back. We did it at the East Running Theatre for a night. We did it at Howden Shire Hall for a night. And it kind of went pretty well. People seemed pretty to enjoy it. And... Um, a whole new theatre were then invited us to kind of slightly get involved with them because they were basically looking for people to use the lounge space. They were like, we want young companies to come and do something here because we've built it and no one's using it. So they said, do you want to do an R&D show in there? And I was like, yeah, I'd be interested in that. And once again, it was just me doing this. So went and did this R&D last June and 
It was a show called Three Emers, which was about dementia awareness and also emo music. It was kind of <laughs> one of the two. And went pretty well. Applied for Smarts Council funding and we were really lucky enough to be funded to do it as a small tour. And from that I um, got some different actors into that who have kind of now become more of the company. Mm. So they did the Three Emos tour then. We just did it again, a bit wider. So we've been down to London and Greenwich and Hereford and all over the place um, in May and now we're doing Dorothy McHale which has got the same actresses in who are in that so we're starting to build more of a rep company so we are growing it. The, the story of Dorothy McHale, a lot of people won't know about it but it is absolutely fascinating so tell us about her and about the show. It's so mad that I've never heard of it like I've been really involved in theatre in whole like so much all my life and to come across like a hero who's like literally she was like the Beyonce of her time. She was a huge celebrity. And she literally was born on Chance Ave in well off Chance Ave in Hull. In Newstead Street. In Newstead Street, yeah. yeah. And went to Thorsby Primary School, they've got the plaque there. And um, she worked as a typist on White Frigate. And then she ran away to London, went to drama school in London, like the first drama school in the UK sort of thing. Spotted there, went into theatre and just kept getting picked up for different jobs so she was really talented and ended up in Hollywood I think she's in more than 70 films played opposite wow. Humphrey Bogart like literally a massive icon of the silver screen but unfortunately she always played quite provocative characters quite out there progressive women mm. and when the production code came in of 1934 which was kind of more of a censorship um, she didn't really get employed as much because she was associated with the kind of more radical side that they didn't want to show. So she was kind of very big for a short period of time. You've got music in the show. Yes. Um, what sort of songs have you got from the era? We've got um, everything being played on piano in a kind of vaudeville style. We've got a pianist who um, is new to the company, who is great, and we're playing putting on the Ritz. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where Harlem sits? Putting on the Ritz. We've got I Want to Be Loved by You, like the Marilyn Monroe version. And we've got Stormy Weather, we've got Stranger in Paradise. And we've also got some um, songs that Dorothy sang in films. So her actual like, songs that were written for her. Yeah. it's not online. <laughs> but... God, that's brilliant. So you've really you've dug deep for research purposes. Interestingly, on YouTube, you can see her in this... I think it's one of her last performances. Have you seen this? When she was in Magnum P.I.? Yeah, it, it was Hawaii. She was in Hawaii 5.0. Oh, was it Hawaii 5.0? Yeah. She was in Hawaii 5.0 twice because basically she ended up living where they filmed it. Right. And they just kept asking her to play like the older women character. I think she was like 78 or something when she was in. But there's all sorts, of, there's an amazing clip online. Um, it's in the Yorkshire Film Archive, I think, of when she returned to Hull. And there was literally, she'd been like mobbed on the street 
of like people just wanting to see her and touch her and she's like riding around in a car it's really like and it's in Hull City Centre in like 1930 it's really mad wow so the show itself how many performers are in it and what sort of format does the show sort of take so it's got four people in it it's got um, one actress that plays Dorothy so she plays Dorothy all the way through and then everybody else plays everyone else that Dorothy interacts in her life so our pianist is the only male actor and he plays Dorothy's multiple husbands and father and then the other two actresses play literally everyone else um, including quite um, frequently Marion Davis who was also a big Hollywood mm. icon and she was Dorothy's best friend throughout most of her life mm. so she plays quite a big role and they're all singers and dancers so it's a bit of a showbiz <laughs> but wow. yeah it's all in like a storytelling fashion so we present it as like oh we're actors telling Dorothy's story and this is how it happened and it's kind of done in kind of a 1920s theatrical way as kind of a sort of a homage to how Dorothy performed mm. when she was in theatre at that time so you mentioned that you've got a relationship with these butterflies or dementia support um, so tell us a bit more about that aspect. yeah that was linked through um, doing Three Emos which was the Dementia Awareness mm. musical which I say it's a Dementia Awareness musical like it's got the themes of dementia in it mm-hmm. um, but it was definitely more than just a lecture on dementia like it is a piece of entertainment mm-hmm. and um, yeah I trained in dementia um, awareness and dementia friendly training with Butterflies Memory Loss Support Group which is based in Cardover mm-hmm. And then from that, also I've done some work with Dementia Friendly East Riding. So quite heavily involved with them now. And actually we're trying to get a very much more dementia awareness, teaching people mm. about dementia, young people about dementia, sure, kind of linked to it. Because, yeah, dementia was something that I've just become a bit of like a ambassador of like, we need to know more about this because the more we know about it, the more we can help people. Understanding just can benefit everyone because so many people don't know like people think Alzheimer's and dementia are two different things no dementia is an umbrella term Alzheimer's is a form of dementia and just stuff like that and especially for younger people who've got grandparents living with dementia they need to understand it because otherwise it can be upsetting like I've got a friend whose grandma thought she was her grandma's mother like that is a confusing scenario to be in so you need to be able to help people I think that's beneficial anyway yeah I'll talk about that forever because that's, it's very interesting <laughs> yeah I, I know June who works who runs Butterfly yeah yeah June and um, are you going to design shows that are going to be sort of dementia friendly is there an aspect of that you're going to sort of introduce yeah I was always interested in doing it and actually when we were touring three emails out um, a lot of theatres were sort of like is it a dementia friendly show and we are like no it's not a dementia friendly show it's a show for people who don't know anything about dementia who want to just have a good night and they might learn something from it. Because um, writing for people with dementia is difficult. It's got to be short because people can forget what happened at the beginning. And it's got to be capable of people getting up, people interact. Like, you don't know what's going to mm. happen. And, yeah, I'm interested in doing something like that. But I'm, at the moment, I don't, know, I don't know if I even know enough. I need to spend even more time. Like, I've done a lot of research. I've spent a lot of time with people. Mm. I've done a lot of work with the charities, but I'm... If I was going to do that, I'd want to do something that is beneficial to people and not just like, yeah. oh, we've managed to do it. Like I'd want it to be like a genuine thing that they would get something out of, mm-hmm. I think. Tell us when uh, Dorothy McHale show. What's it called? It's called the... It's called The Remarkable Tale of Dorothy McHale. <laughs> That's good. It rhymes and it's true. Um, and it's running from... 
It's literally three nights. It's the 3rd, 4th and 5th of June at whole new theatre studio. And it's just um, a 50-minute show, so it's just kind of Brilliant. a short one-act. Um, final question. What, um, just generally, what, what would you like to see uh, sort of coming over Hull's cultural horizon, wherever it's from? I'd like to just see lots of different people doing lots of different things. Because I think that's exciting. Like, there's a lot of theatre companies in Hull now, mm. but like, there can be even more. Like, I go to Liverpool a lot, I've got friends there and things, and there is so much always happening. Like, you can guarantee you go to Liverpool and there will be something happening on that day, like every day. And I just think more and more people need to be like, I can do it and I can do it in my way. Because I think sometimes people are like, oh, that company's doing that, so I also have to do that thing. Mm. And you don't have to do that, you can do your thing. Mm. And that's more exciting because that's different people bringing different voices. Mm. And I think also for people from Hull to stay in Hull and be doing it mm. is exciting. I'm born and raised here, um, you can tell from the voice, <laughs> um, doing stuff with like um, two out of the three actors in Dorothy McKayla, born and raised in Hull. One's parents are from Hull, the other's one's from Manchester. <laughs> but <laughs> he's a very good pianist, that's so we let right. him off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, just. Celebrating the city which we're from, mm. like why not? Yeah, <laughs> literally. I just want, I just want stuff to be happening. I think people just need the confidence to do it. But it's not like easy. Not, no. <laughs> it's not. I like. I'm not like. Oh yeah, you just do it tomorrow. Mm. Well, but. the room you're in, you've you've probably had to. Well, we're in Beverly actually. We're on Fleming Gate, and uh, we're in this. It looks like it's better the car park, isn't it? It's like a sort of, it's a bit of yeah. It's a bit of the car park, yeah. But that's that's the that's the life of people trying to make, you know, grassroots. Uh, theatre, you've got to beg, borrow, steal and get favours, I suppose. Oh, yeah, you? literally, like, I'm doing this um, in 15 minutes, I'm going to be working in the shop. Yeah. Because you've got to get my petrol in the car. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dave Windass has lived many lives. Ballroom dancer, builder, journalist, playwright, producer, lecturer, dramaturg, facilitator and Bowie-like... He is evolving and will live some more as Sonic Doodler and artist, although that nomenclature makes him nervous. His writing for Hull Truck has spanned the Spring Street and Ferensway eras, with landmark plays like Sully and On a Shout achieving the then golden overlap of audience love and critical acclaim. Although he could have made a steady career hollowing out the limited seam of ye good oldie Hull stories, he joined Ensemble 52 instead, and, alongside Andy Pearson and Richard Vergette, helped find and build new performance spaces and set up Heads Up Festival, which has served up a rich, weird and wonderful menu of shows to a city grown pale and flabby on a beige, convenience diet of culture. This, remember, when Hull 2017 was as ridiculous a phrase as Leicester City Premier League champions. He's also helped create the fertile environment in which Hull theatre makers have been able to experiment, play, fail, fail better and grow. He's played an essential role in establishing the thriving theatrical ecosystem that exists now. And we'll hear how his work with First Story, the creative writing project for schools, is showing the next generation how to find its voice and realise that that voice has value. Like the Adam Buxton of Hull. 
Yeah. Back up. Well, he's, he's like the inspiration, because I think he makes brilliant podcasts. There is, certainly. I, I, uh, I love his stuff. Really, really well produced. One, I, well, I listen to so many... But yeah, Buxton stuff, and I, I just look like his daft jingles and stuff. And they're so funny, those jingles. Amazing, yeah. The jingles are unbelievable, aren't they? And it's a wonder advertisers kind of actually let him do it. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, really cool. And then the other one, the other podcast I really like, and it's a bit weird, is Emily Dean, who's on the radio with Frank Skinner. And oh she yeah. There's a thing called Walking the Dog. Right. And she got, she literally like she'll find a celebrity who's got a dog, and she takes them for a walk. And they go for a fucking walk with a dog. Yeah. But it works because they're disarmed, these people, you know, like you get like quite big names on it. But because right. they're concentrating on like where the dog's going, or the dog might stop and have a shit. Yeah. It, like she'll ask, she'll get them like revealing stuff. That's good. And, and do they talk dog as well? They or? talk dog. And then by the time they've talked dog, they're usually that relaxed that the guards write down. My mum had a cocker spaniel when I was born. And I remember it, but it sort of died when I think I was about four or five. Um, and then we had cats, like when I was sort of growing yeah. up. And then yeah, there's no value to a cat for me, mate. They're, they're just, just what's they're the just point? Fucking clawing pad, don't they? And well, this one of these cats is <laughs> called Annie, and I used to have like a loft bedroom. She yeah. used to walk down the steps, and I used to sling all my clothes over this banister rail, <laughs> and it'd hide behind the clothes. And when it, when it got like eye height, it'd fucking jump out <laughs> and, and scratch me like. What's the fucking... Oh, like, a, like a cartoon, like a sort of evil... Yeah, evil like Thundercats or, or, or Hugh Jackman. Yeah. I used to go to school Brilliant. with like three fucking cat scratches. Yeah. Right near my eye. Nice. Bastards. Evil. But what a look. They're the devil's <laughs> agents on earth, aren't they? They are. They are. They're not as much... They don't have personalities like dogs, do they? Like we, we used to take boxers in as well from Boxer Rescue on like short-term kind of adoption. Yeah, yeah. Foster yeah. care sort of scheme going on. And uh, we had some weird dogs. One of them could open the front door. And I lived on Spring Bank and it used to open the front door with its paw, kind of just go out and run up and down the main road. And you think, where's the dog gone? And you go out the front of the house and the dog's like holding all the traffic up. Yeah. <laughs> it's like walking down the white line <laughs> on the road. <laughs> but my mum's got two dogs now. Cavachons, so half King Charles, half Bichon. Right. And so she's got a second one just at Christmas. Yeah. They didn't like each other to start with. But now they just kind of chase each other around Wrecker and Hazel. And it's great. It's really lovely. Mm. They're just uncomplicatedly a good thing, I think. Yeah, yeah. Get one. Yeah. Um, we're just in your garden, in the avenues. Mm. Eating hobnobs. S- eating hobnobs. Um, <laughs> this is the life. It is the life, isn't it? I don't want you to get the wrong idea, Matt. I think this is how I live my life every day. Inviting young men round to eat biscuits. At the back of his garden. <laughs> <laughs> Seducing him with hobnobs. <laughs> I get um, them to provide the biscuits as well. <laughs> that's the condition. <laughs> yeah, it's the first one I've done outside. Mm. So we've got a nice bit of... I mean, it might come out and it's just all we can hear is the rustling of leaves, but uh, I always start with the first question, which is, um, when was the first time that you saw Hull on stage or screen or yeah. heard it on the radio? Well, having been a fan of your podcast for a few episodes now, oh. uh, I've been thinking about this question. And I think Monty Python was the first time I heard Hull mentioned on TV. They do a joke about uh, something about the funniest joke that's ever been told. And, it, and so they're having to blow people up. I don't know. There's a series of bushes. And this guy behind one of the bushes that gets blown up by Monty Python is from Hull. Right. So that's the first <laughs> recollection I've got of Hull being uh, mentioned in anything that I've experienced. In this film, we hope to show you how not to be seen. 
Mr. and Mrs. Watson of Ivy Cottage, Warpleston Road, Hull, chose a very cunning way of not being seen. However, a neighbour told us where they were. His whole, it's like a standard punchline. Yeah, yeah. There's one in Blackadder, three great universities, well, Oxford, Cambridge and Hull. Do you know what I think it is as well? It's the monosyllabic place name, isn't it? You know, Kingston upon Hull is one thing, but like Hull itself, just because it's a monosyllable, it's like there's something funny about that, like the same as there's something funny about Splot. Yes. Where Clive Sullivan was born, you know, like, and Stuart Lee's used that in some stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and other than that, like the usual stuff, really. I guess stuff that was on at Spring Street, I think. Yeah, when did you first go? That, did you see any of Bradwell's stuff? I won't have seen any Bradwell stuff. The first thing I saw at Hull Truck was a version of Twelfth Night when I was at school doing my English O-level and fairly miserably the teacher kept dragging us to various performances of Twelfth Night and so I saw that at Spring Street and found it painful <laughs> and it put me off Shakespeare for a long time. For some reason we just like did Twelfth Night to the death. We listened to like a BBC recording of it. We went to a version of it at the New Theatre and, and it was actually it was probably a good production but I like I couldn't like I was sat on the front row and I just couldn't handle these actors being in my kind of close vicinity and it right. was like it felt like a complete invasion of space while they were spouting their Elizabethan madness you know it's like <laughs> really weird and so like by the end of that it's like oh I'm so fed up of this whatever this stuff is and I don't understand it well. so yeah it was like completely traumatized by it and thought at that point so that was what 1978 79 something Right, completely like this theatre thing, whatever it is, it isn't for me. Um, and yeah, thank heavens for like Northern Broadsides kind of doing like, you know, Did good, that good versions of it. Yeah, so there's that. And then I started kind of regularly going up to Dean Clough as well and seeing stuff. So, and you know, which, which was cool. And then you, you like, you get it, don't you? And that's yeah. how it should be done or, or it should be treated in a similar way to the way that Broadsides do it. So yeah, I appreciate it now. But actually the first time... I sort of recall meeting you and having a chat with you was at Spring Street mm. and I think you'd been teaching some Shakespeare workshops or yeah. something and I was like, Shakespeare, pa. it's like, I'm not interested in history lessons and yeah. going off on one about it. But I didn't know what I was talking about. No, no, I mean, I used to do like whole drama festival and stuff. Yeah. I used to do little Shakespeare speeches. So I sort of got to Shakespeare from that perspective and kind of enjoyed it. And yeah. I think when you speak it and you've got somebody to help you understand it, it's like something sort of happens to you. The actual act of speaking Shakespeare is really yeah, quite, yeah. quite an energetic, um, stimulating thing to do. So I was lucky that I had that first experience. Yeah, yeah. I think it's different as well, maybe, for actors. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I can appreciate, like, the plots and the stories within. And so, you know, we're constantly, like, as writers, you're, like, rifling through all that material, aren't you? And going, yeah, I'll have a bit of that, which obviously he did as well, didn't he, back yeah. in the day. Um, I think it's different. I think the relationship that writers have maybe with Shakespeare is different to the one that actors have just like actors like wrapping the tongue around it all don't they and yeah. making love to his words <laughs> uh, yeah but yeah i mean it stands the test of time man, it does it, it kind of we wouldn't be talking about him in this garden would we no it's true and sometimes it, i'll be watching a shakespeare production i'll be drifting because i i know it too well or i just i've lost a thread yeah and suddenly something will ping out a, a line i'll go oh my god that's absolutely beautiful yeah 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 and you just think He's speaking across the centuries. Isn't yeah, he? and so much stuff that's in common parlance now, you know, like phrases and things that we use that we don't even think about, the derivation of them that have come from his quill, haven't they? Absolutely, yeah. Were you... Ah, um, as the chainsaw starts up. That's all right. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's always a chainsaw. <laughs> it's coming through the fence. <laughs> um... 
Does it sound like a long job? <laughs> I'm trying to see. Surely not. I think it's not even next door, is it? It's next door but one. Oh, sorry about this. Um, first Laura podcasts do not try and record an interview in a cafe or a garden. Right. We're back in the room. Back in the room after being um, rudely interrupted. What, why do people come out in spring and start doing the gardens? It's ridiculous. In winter, when it's when there's now to do. Exactly. <laughs> so we're talking about um, ballroom. Well, you wrote a play, Ballroom Blitz. I did, yeah. And I, I didn't realise at that point that you done. You and your sister used to dance. Yeah, we. Well, that's like family obsession, really. Like my mum and dad were like massively into ballroom dancing. It's gone around the front of the house now. Ain't it? <laughs> Yeah, so you mo- during the sixties, your mum and dad were yeah, just just ballroom dance obsessed really. So every Saturday night, we, we lived down Albert Ave, which is off Adelaide Road, sort of near the KC Stadium, and there was a place down there called the Newington Ballroom. Oh yeah, it was run by a couple called Callis and Wardby, and um, there'd be a live kind of jazz band on, like wow. a sort of Glenn Miller style orchestra, if you like. Um, so that was our routine on a Saturday night when we were when we were little and growing up. It'd be like Basil Brush Show. <laughs> Doctor Who Generation game. Life is the name of the game, and I want to play the game with you. And down to the Newington for a bit of dancing. Midnight, where the stars and you. Midnight, and a rendezvous. And my sister loved it, and I was like, oh, yeah, you know, it's... Yeah, this is clearly what we do. So I don't know, I'll have been like three when we first started going there. And um, yeah, so I, I learned how to ballroom dance and kind of did it until I was like 10 and was quite good at it. And then, you know, by, by the time I quit the game, <laughs> um, it's just like peer pressure, really. It's like me, my mates were sort of saying, they're coming and playing football this weekend. Mm. It's like, no, I'm off dancing. It's like, yeah, what? Yeah, uh, yeah I like a waltz and a quick step. I don't know what you mean by centre forward and midfield players. Yeah, can you do the cha 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 like I can? And it stopped going down too well with them, so I got really kind of embarrassed about dancing. Right. So I kind of quit in a blaze of glory and stormed out of Callis Wardby. Right. Um, thinking that my mum and dad and my sister would go like, it's time that Dave kind of got a little bit of attention here, but they just carried on going, didn't they? And I was just like left at home on my own, which right. was acceptable then in, right. in that era. So I've got a, like a love-hate relationship with ballroom dancing. But I scaled the dizzy heights of winning the, I don't know, Blackpool Under-10 really? championships and stuff. Like my first appearance in the media was when I won the, this Under-10s competition. We were the youngest couple to win the Under-10s competition because we were six. Wow. Me and my partner, Michaela, who had a fantastic kind of Shirley Temple-style perm. So we ended up on the front page of the old Daily Mail because we were big news. Wow. Was that ex- must have been exciting. It's been it, hundreds well, of people. It's, yeah, like hundreds of people, mate. Yeah, like these really like beautiful venues. You know, Bridge Spa as it was, and like we'd go to places that are like Hull City Hall mm. and these massive ballrooms all over the place. Um, and Blackpool Tower, you know, before Strictly Come Dancing was a thing, we'd go to Blackpool every year and dance in front of hundreds and thousands of people. So, wow. So part of me like really liked that because I was a bit of a show off then, but part of me like was feeling a bit anxious about it all as well, which is probably another reason why I kind of gave it up and mm. let them get on with it. Like my sister carried on, like carried on dancing, became a dance teacher and still loves it, you know. Whereas I'm like, yeah, don't want anything to do with that. And so I wrote Ballroom Blitz for trucking whenever that was 2012. It was supposed to be a cathartic experience for me. Right. I'm finally going to get this out my system. It's all ballroom dance 
nightmare that I've been living and tell people what I really think about it. But of course, the end result was like an affectionate portrayal of ballroom dancing. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> was there a point where you thought, oh, actually, it's not turning out? There were a lot of points, mate, with that play. Yeah. Okay. It was it was one of those. So, like we, I'm sure everybody knows about the turmoil that went on at Hull Truck. Um, so I'd written a draft of it, and then it kind of got put on hold. And in the from the point that it got put on hold, then John and John Godber and Gareth ended up leaving Hull Truck. So I had this play that had been commissioned that I'd written the draft of, and it was kind of just in the building, and that just stopped. Right. And then it was like all right, I've written this cathartic thing to get ballroom dancing out of my system, but it feels like it's still, it's stuck in another system now, which was a bit weird. Mm. Um, I think quite a lot of people have been commissioned to write new pieces for the Ferensware building, so I was one of those, and we got invited in to kind of talk about what we thought about the stuff that we'd been commissioned to write and whether we wanted to pursue it. So, um, Yeah, so we did, we pursued it, and the sort of first incarnation of Ballroom Blitz on stage was uh, launching trucks, play a pie in a pint night where yeah. you could take a pie in yeah. to watch a performance so yeah. it's a scripting and version of it yeah um, and then it was like that went down alright so it's like well let's move it into production but it just took so long man. It took so long from the sort of idea so it's probably like something that was kicking about from 2008 that long yeah wow and then it, it was finally produced in 2012 in a full production so like four years did out. you find you just lost momentum you, well, you, you just, just forget why you've written it in the first place. Right. I think I mean, you know it was like it was it was it started out it was fun and I was having a having a good time with it and mm. I was exploring you know what I wanted to write and it, and it, there was a lot of really personal stuff in it and yeah. then a lot of like stuff that was just daft because I like daft stuff. Yeah. Um, so there was that and then obviously like you know that team that was working with me on that just weren't there anymore. So it was like yeah I just stopped working on it. I just thought well that's just dead. You know it's yeah. not, it's never going to see the light of day, which is a shame. I didn't know what was happening at Truck and whether I'd have any kind of relationship with that place. So mm. it's like, you know, that was fun while it lasted. So mm-hmm. like, I need to do other stuff now. So it was a bit weird. And then obviously getting the opportunity to revisit it. Uh, I just wanted to kind of get it out of my system and put it to bed really, mm-hmm. you know, and finish it off. Yeah. Um, but but that process as, as well was quite difficult after the play pie and a pint thing. Um, Conrad Nelson ended up directing it yeah. from Broadsides. Uh, like Con was great but he had some different ideas and like I don't know by that point I was like I'm not sure I, you know mm-hmm. I don't know where I'm going with this and I can't remember why I wrote it so it was just a weird it was a weird process I do remember like I was re you know we had a we had a table reading on the first day rehearsals and we were like we were both listening to the second half of the play thinking yeah, that needs a bit more work should have been sorted you know after four mm. years but you know it was like relatively by then it was a new play um, so the actors were kind of in rehearsing the first half of the play, the first 35 pages or whatever, and I was in the holiday in next door kind of rewriting the second half, and they were running out of pages. So, right. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. Uh, and, you know, the finished product was all right. I think people enjoyed it. It, it was a long way from the original idea mm. that I'd had, to, you know, to deal with some stuff that I went through when I was a kid. Mm relating to ballroom dancing um but it was fun and like and conrad was amazing and he's like he's a brilliant director yes yeah a, at a time when i was like getting a bit dizzy with it all he was such a calming like meditative influence it was beautiful to work with him and, and to see how you know he did his thing that's when he earned the money is when because they're right in the middle of everything they're dealing with the tech side they're yeah. dealing with producers and 
pressure and you know all the rest of it and then they've got to be like a sort of human shield of all the problems for the actors in the yeah, room because yeah. you can't transmit that but like he was protecting me he was like looking after the actors and protecting yeah. them there was some stuff going on with the with the, the management team at truck as well who were sort of sticking their head in on it mm -hmm. and you know he was dealing with that magnificently and kept us all protected from that mm -hmm. so like there was a bit of a boot room mentality around the play as well yeah so yeah i mean you know a wonderful cast as well that we worked with on that it was lovely in the end i really enjoyed it mm. and i did think oh, i'm never going to get the opportunity to work with truck again but i did get the opportunity to work with truck again and mm. it, it kind of turned out all right um when did you start writing i've always written matt uh yeah, it's weird because I'm like, I just spent so long thinking, how does a daft kid like me, you know, write for a living? Like, I've always written stuff. Like, so I was born in a council house down Albert Ave in Westall. And, um, like, my mum and dad are both, like, quite creative people aware. So it was, like, quite a creative household. My dad used to get in from his job as a sign writer and then he would paint, you know, he'd paint right. landscapes and stuff. And, you know, and he'd do like caricatures. Our bedroom walls were full of caricatures of like Disney characters and cartoon characters and stuff. So he was like a really good artist. And then, um, so I, I like kind of grew up watching that and we had a house full of books. And I used to kind of, you know, be read like Edward Lear and Roald Dahl at bedtime and all these beautiful things, you know, like grim fairy tales and mm. stuff like that. So I kind of grew up around that. And uh, we were always doing stuff creatively in the house. So it was like, I could just sit and write you know and very often it'd be like nonsense poems after edward lear or <laughs> you know limericks and stuff like that so i'd spend loads of time doing that and then stick it in a box like i don't know what what, what am i supposed to do with any of that because there was there was no trajectory for for someone like me born in all to kind of work out how you got into writing at all yeah when i was at school i used to do like fanzines and stuff oh, and yeah. give them to me mates to like run them off on a photocopier so by the time like you know, mid-70s like punk and all that I was churning these things out and giving them to my mates I don't know why you know mm. take... but I just carried on doing like rubbish like that and just giving it to a select band of people without really knowing where to go with it and it was only when I went back to college when I uh, I was I worked in the building trade the first 10 years of my working life in the building trade so it was a bit like you know every day was like in an episode of Alvida's Pet. but I worked with this kid who and we both used to make each other laugh and uh we were both like closet writers, but we'd never told any of the lads, you know, mm -hmm. so because we just got on so well, it's like, you know, we somehow managed to come out to each other as writers. Yeah. And for a while we had like sort of a dream of, we had the confidence to think we were really funny and thought we'd be able to be the next big double acting comedy. Like sort so, of Galton and Simpson of Hull. That kind of thing. Yeah. So we spent a bit of time like writing together and we used to use a room at, uh, what's it called? Um, Lonsdale Community Centre mm. on Annaby Road. We used to like book a room in there and kind of work up some sketches and sort of sitcom ideas and stuff like that. It never went anywhere, but I just couldn't work out how to, how to write. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was really weird. And it was only when I went, I went back to college and university as a mature student, having kind of grown tired of working in the building trade and, um, and thinking I can't really do that because there'll be a point where you know, all arthritic and old and stuff, so maybe I should use my brain a bit more. So, yeah, and I started a magazine up, and uh, some of the magazines got in touch with me and said, we've just read your thing in this university magazine, do you want to do a bit for us? So I just started doing, like, freelance writing, like bits of journalism and art stuff. Yeah. And then that sort of led to me uh, work, doing a lot of, like, theatre reviewing and stuff. So I used to work for the stage and uh, what's on stage, the website in the mid 90s when the internet was a thing that was just forming becoming mm. a thing 
and and loads of other publications as well and yeah and that's how I sort of got uh, so I was getting a theatre education alongside of like all right you can actually write for a living Mm. it might not be the creative thing that I was dreaming of doing but you can actually people will pay you money for for putting sentences together which was pretty cool so you know I grew in confidence from that really and then we've seen loads of theatre that weren't very good so I started saying to people I'm going to write a play yeah that's just that's what happened it was like I can write something as bad as that that's the <laughs> shit I've seen tonight so um I just started telling people that you know with a view to like if you say it out loud and you say it often enough you're gonna have to either shut up at some point or mm. actually see it through and do it so I did the latter yeah and what did you write well this sort of coincided with whole truck setting up this sort of new writing group sort of thing so it was like it's like an open-ended writer's drop-in center like a home for the bewildered <laughs> writer so i was already dropping in unsolicited scripts i think they just had enough for me and i was just being really prolific but like prolifically being bad you know writing an awful like derivative bits of scripts that were not finished and they were all a bit sort of pinteresque mm-hmm. uh bit joe orton and you know wearing my influences on my sleeve i just think they got fed up of me like taking in a, another script and another script and another script mm. so a part of me was thinking oh, they've set up this group especially for me <laughs> to deal with me it's like either that or they phone the police and take out a court order <laughs> <laughs> and we used to meet every week and uh the artistic team from at spring street john godber was there and did he get involved gareth was there yeah he, he came to the first meeting the inaugural meeting of this new writing uh, scheme which wasn't really a scheme. I don't think anyone thought it through. I think they got some funding from somewhere and it was just like, you can come, as long as the money lasts, we can just keep meeting every week. And we used to go to either Spring Street or go to the YPI, which Truck used to use as their rehearsal rooms. Yeah, and John came to speak at the first meeting of this new writers group. And mm. it was it was interesting because he, um, he'd obviously been asked at the last minute to pop along to speak to us all. And we were all in awe of, you know, it's God, but yeah. that's amazing. And then um, within about 10 seconds, he'd broken his glasses. <laughs> <laughs> so he uh so he walked in the room and then he dropped his glasses or something and stood on them and so he'd broken his glasses so he was like oh my god i've brought my glasses out like and i can't see him um and then he said something like uh, i thought he might want to see me notebooks so he uh he's fumbling about with his broken glasses and he had a notebook with him and he showed us his kind of a, a little insight into his process which he was like he said i draw a play like that's where sometimes this is where they start i'll 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 see the play and I'll draw it. So he had like sort of drawings for um, for sets and yeah. and stuff, which was really good. And then loads of like non secretors, like overhead conversations that yeah. he'd like. So he'd been going about his business, like going from coffee shop to coffee shop and sitting down and acting like a sponge and just picking up these bits of dialogue. And his notebook was just full of overhead dialogue and or lines that he'd come up with that hadn't been attributed to any characters. It was just like someone at some point in the future will say that line because it's brilliant and <laughs> stuff like that. And so that lasted about 10 minutes and then he you know, looked at his broken pair of glasses again and says, right, I've got to get off to get these fixed. And that was it. I mean, and and he'd, he'd drop in and out and he'd always speak to us. So there was about 14 of us on that. Not as formal as like the sort of writing groups you get at producing theatres these days, I don't think. But yeah, we just used to write. So whoever had written stuff, we'd take it in. There might be a couple of actors kicking about who were maybe, you know, looking for something to do on a night because they were in a production at Truck or they were rehearsing or something. So they'd just agreed to come along and they'd come along and read some stuff. And so we'd hear actors read our work. And uh, and it was a brilliant like learning curve for kind of 18 months of that, really. 
Gareth Tudor Price was like look, looked after the group and he was just there every week and that was like amazing because obviously he knew what he was talking about and he was very generous in terms of his advice and guidance to writers but as the 18 months wore on it was like people started falling away so it was one of them it's like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory I guess if you manage to just stick it out till you're the last man standing yeah <laughs> something may happen that's, that's my career basically I just as long as I've got one white knuckled hand holding on then I'm, I'm doing alright I'm, right. I'm not sure as a selection process it works because I think some talented you know a couple of really talented people fell by the wayside because they got fed up of waiting but like we just stuck it out as like a couple of us who just like stuck it out to the very end and an unprecedented opportunity yeah and then that led to the actually someone who'd been a part of the group kept saying I'm going to write a play about the 1980 Challenge Cup final and um, <laughs> and they never wrote anything so they'd turn up every week and they'd say that and then it's like what have you written this week nothing so yeah via a circuitous route if that's the correct way to say that word um, I ended up writing a play about the 1980 Challenge Cup final oh did you what was that called that was called Kicked Into Touch oh yeah, yeah before yeah. that I'd written a play about uh, a sort of short play about supermarket management <laughs> which of was, course but, yeah of course so it was a really important story that needed to be told in contemporary Britain <laughs> Uh, the bulk of it was just a big long list of, of the things you can buy in a supermarket. So it's like three pages of aisle one and it just lists all the stuff because I, lo- I just love wordplay and repetition. You know, it's a deliberate thing. It's not an accident. Mm. Some <laughs> some people I've worked with just think I've got some issues and I can't see it, but I can know I'm doing it. Um, again, that's like a David Nobbs kind of Reggie Perrin thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that, there's that scene that Jeffrey Palmer does where he... He just like recites this big long list of people that are wrong, and it goes on and on and on. And I thought I really like that, like, but like surely we can push that and make it longer. Mm. So in in this play about supermarkets, there's this like it goes on for like 15 minutes, just a list, an itinerary of everything you can buy in a supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> so it was that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then and so I had truck saying to me, you might want to think about writing something commercial if you're going to carry on with this, because mm. no one's going to sit in and put up with that. So. They ended up asking me to write about this 1980 Challenge Cup final because I'd been at the game and I was a rugby fan. Yeah. And stuff. So, was that on in the main house? When, when did that? Well, this was this was at Spring Street. So yeah. That was in 2004. And then the first thing I saw of yours was Sully. Yeah, yeah. So revisiting, well, that legendary figure, but in, in a really interesting way. It was a ghost story, wasn't it? It was a ghost story. No spoilers, yeah. you know. Yeah, no spoilers. But yeah, he's like, I guess we we just decided that. Uh, Clive Sullivan would be the kind of guardian angel of the road that bears his name in and out of Hull in mm. the Clive Sullivan way. So when anyone gets into any scrapes, and it was like every morning when he turned on Radio Umberside, there'd be like another report, Dolce Street flyover had closed due to a collision, mm. you know, that, that, that Sully might be there to kind of guide him home or whatever. So it was kind of, yeah, it was it was about that really. But yeah, that, that was a weird kind of thing as well. So I wrote this kicked into touch thing and it was only on for for like five performances but it attracted an interesting audience so like rugby fans so yeah. uh, so one of the things was like ah oh, great audience development that we should look at doing a bit more of that but after that like they said what ideas have you got and i i was pitching this like idea about the house martins to them right uh and i only mentioned this thing about uh clive sullivan as an afterthought because i'd had a dream about it the night before this oh, meeting wow. where i'd seen the poster because they were they were just talking about the move to Ferensway and this new theatre on Ferensway. And uh, I had a dream about this poster kind of above the door. So I kind of pitched this really bad idea 
and then mentioned it as an afterthought that when you move buildings I've got a great play for you then uh, about Clive Sullivan and described the poster I'd seen and his naming lights and uh, yeah they'd said oh, we'll do that then instead never mind this bobbins idea you just <laughs> spent half an hour pitching to us we'll do that Clive Sullivan thing so yeah and then on a shout was what sort of gave you the most sort of satisfaction where you thought this is all the good things coming together my voice is there yeah was that on a shout yeah I think so yeah I was petrified to be honest after Sully and you know it got some really nice attention and loads of beautiful feedback and the audience reaction was just unbelievable mm. So that was it. That was on in 2006, and then they instantly revived it while they still had the rights <laughs> in 2007 as well. So we had a two bites of the cherry with that, and then it was like, what are you going to do next? Um, and it was, I guess it must be what bands go through, man, when, you know, it's difficult, like, you know, next album syndrome. It was like, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can do anything now, because mm. I've written this thing, and people cried, and people laughed, and people gave it a standing ovation, mm. which was just unbelievable. Um I don't know if I've got an idea that'll be able to do that. And I'd also, like, right at the beginning of my, me walking into truck as well, I said, I don't want to be that writer that writes about Hull. Like, I'd made a strong kind of statement about, I don't want to be, like, a professional working-class voice. I don't want to write about the North. I don't want to write about this city. I don't want to write that stuff that's just shoehorning references in. Yeah. But because they had an idea of what their family wanted, like, and they explain to me like you know this is what we do and this is how we do it and you know it's not like it won't prescribed really but looking back now it's like probably exactly the thing that was needed for me to write to get an audience it's like exactly the right moves that they were making on my behalf to, to do that so I was also like oh God, I've like I've written this play about a whole legend it's like now I'm going to be like Mr. Hull play like right. how do you get out of that um so on a shout came along and it was like what ideas have you got and I just thought I need to I can either shy away and never do anything ever again or I can sort of challenge myself. Mm. And so initially the idea of On A Shout, which is about the full-time lifeboat crew that were based at Spend Point and the arrival of a female crew member, was to write an epic play, mm. even though I probably didn't even know what one was. <laughs> mm. So I just thought I need to write something really big that's almost impossible for me to imagine how I would start with that because mm. it's kind of the only way I can keep saying about what I can do as a writer is to really kind of chuck myself in at the deep end if you'll excuse the kind of yeah, yeah. Uh, drowning reference uh so i did that so it was like let's do this thing that spans several decades big fan like loads of people are richard beans under the world back so i kind of looked at the structure of that and spoke to richard bean about how that worked and how time had worked in that and how he'd managed to kind of work his way through the decades and still make a really contemporary piece of work so that, that was the kind of starting point for it really and then um, uh, I was going on and on about how it would work through the decades and it'd flash forward and flash back and boomerang around, you know, mm. come back to, right back to where it started. And Gareth said to me, I don't, I can't really visualise this. Can you draw it for me? So I don't know whether that was influenced by the way John was working in his notebooks at the time, but he said, I want you to draw a map of how it works, like the timeline well. and stuff. So I went away and spent ages like mucking about with circles and stuff, not really writing, just like drawing <laughs> <laughs> and I took you back in a few weeks later and I said, oh, I've got that map for you, the place. He says, what, what? I've got that map for you, the place. Oh, what are you talking about? Like, I don't remember asking you for that. <laughs> so I, don't, I still don't know whether I'd imagined he'd asked for that. God. But yeah, I mean, it was lovely. So I think that was, that was uh, me maturing maybe as a writer and kind of working out a little bit 
how to talk about an area and be specific without it being the dominant part of the play. Because I think with with a couple of hull based players I'd written before, they were very much, it was very shoe horned in. You know, it's mm. like let's mention Esel Road and yeah, yeah, yeah. let's mention our favourite chip shop and. Oh, Fletcher's Fountain. Preston Road and stuff. And it was all very like, how many references do we want? Let's put one in there, A, B and C. Yeah. And do that. And I think maybe it wasn't um, as obvious, hopefully, in, on a shout. That's the mark of a maturity of a place where you can be confident not to have that place front and centre. It's maybe there, incidentally, there's just a feel of it. Yeah, I think that's what it needs to be, isn't it, really? I, th- I think it's good to be specific about a place. And I think... Other cities in the UK that you know where, where writers operate, they're not as bashful about sort of really pinpointing a geographical location. So there's loads of examples of work in Manchester, Liverpool, Edinburgh, say, you know, like you're having Welsh sort of things where it's like really like specifically, we know where that place is. Yeah. We we know you're referencing that street and I can walk about that mm. place. Um whereas I think, yeah, we're at different kind of maybe it's a different stage of the artistic ecosystem in Hull so we're just trying to work out how to do that without Mm. it becoming the overbearing thing I think you can be really specific and it's good to be specific because therein lies the universalities that you need in a story Mm. Um, but yeah I think we're all trying to work out really how to how to root stories and root plays and root films and radio dramas or whatever in the city but for for that not to be the you know the important thing of the people's stories that you're telling within that hmm. and, I'm, and I'm still not a fan of telling histories on stage necessarily mm-hmm. or, t- or really basing things too much in actuality mm-hmm. I think that's uh, you're kind of on finite ground really yep. there you, you, there's only so far you can dig and you'll run out of material mm-hmm. it's a bit like that writer's adage of write what you know mm-hmm. well if we all did that we'd be out of stuff within a week you know yep. it, like, I've only lived so much and mm. um, there's not that much material there, and I think that's the same thing. If you're just mining a city for like the Clive Sullivans and the Little Balockers and the whatever, you're gonna you're gonna run out of stuff. It's like what else is happening around that? Mm. And you know, I've done my hands up and say like I've done some of that, but I also know the problems with that as well. You know, it's like when you go back, like yeah, I can't be as passionate about another whole story. I don't want to be. You know, yeah, like I really. I really felt we're like writing about Clive Sullivan that I was like I had a personal investment in that and it felt like it was my life as mm-hmm. well and it, like some of the stuff it's not a transparent or apparent in the play but there's some stuff that's there deep within that play that might have even been lost across several drafts of it but it's about loss and 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 change in a city as well that's in that's like that's definitely in there mm-hmm. and it's like but it's coming out of the mouth of Clive Sullivan but like that's they're my thoughts about where Hull was going in 2006. It feels at the moment like well, I was walking down White Frigate and Mark Suspenses had all been, all the signage had been taken down, which is weird to but see it, that. Doesn't it look beautiful without that signage? Kind of does actually. I was admiring that building. Kind of does it? in a way, yeah. And then but boots, you know, workmen there kind of taking the boots sign down, yeah. and that's really the final coffin for White Frigate as we know it. Mm. Um, and it just feels like we're looking over our shoulder and yeah, celebrating things from the past. But is is it is part of that? Because we're a bit scared to look forward in terms of the stories we're going to yeah, tell. Probably. Yeah, like I, like personally, I'm not. No. <laughs> so that's the exciting thing, isn't it? Yeah. But I think people are like it's it's easier to look back, isn't it? Because you you can kind of lock it down. You know what's happened, so it makes you feel safe and warm and secure. Yeah. Whereas an unknown future is like for some people, it's like anxiety inducing and it's stress inducing, isn't it? Where, yeah. Whereas I guess for some of us, it's like. I like that blank canvas nature of it. 
I think they, that stuff you're talking about on White Frigate, like there's a the death of the high streets happened everywhere else. Yeah, of course. And I think we were in a bubble in 2017, like and protected from that. And even if some of those shops were still empty, at least they had nice vinyls on the windows. Yeah, well, that's kind true. of concealed their emptiness, or they were used for arts projects. But that's not going to last, is it? No. Like if you go to other places, if you've ever been outside a hole, which you know, I think maybe another problem with the city as well. Like not people don't often go elsewhere you know there's a lot of people who are stuck here for a variety of reasons a lot of it economic but you know you see the same stuff everywhere else i think some weird planning decisions like which is a bit odd thing to talk about but i think like we were thinking about white frigate and you know when that new bridge is built that takes us all to the manor from heaven that is humber street like no one's got a reason to walk down white frigate then we'll just aim straight for the bars on humber street or whatever else is down yeah. there and um and then we can just lock it up then you know, or knock it down or put a roof over it or I don't know. So we're talking about the future and the fact that you're not afraid of it because, well, you had the influence rather than sort of wait passively for something to happen. I don't like the fact that you're talking about me in the past tense, Matt. No, no, <laughs> but I'm going back to the future because when you set up Ensemble 52, I was reading the article looking back on the Heads Up festivals. Yeah, yeah. And it was really inspiring. You sort of said, don't ever organise anything ever. And yet back, you had that opportunity with Battersea Arts Centre to, yeah, yeah. to have this festival, which has been hugely influential on my sort of taste, because the sort of stuff that you've brought to the city was just fantastic, really just mm. odd, quirky sort of stuff before quirky became part of our sort of uh, identity <laughs> officially. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about... Like you say, it's like it, it, it absolute pleasure to even be invited to the table with Battersea Arts Centre. I sort of really admired for the work they'd done on Jerry Springer the Opera. Yeah. <laughs> where they'd let Stuart Lee and uh, Is it Richard Thompson? Ri- uh, Richard oh it'll come back to us. You'll have to insert the correct name. I will isn't I'll do that. Uh, His name Richard Thomas. Stuart Lee had developed the Jerry Springer the Opera in a room there and it went from being a, you know one man a piano and Stuart Lee in a room in front of six people to the commercial disaster it became so but that that kind of scratch process so it's like yeah that, that excites me i know that's the art center are um so we're never going to say no to that and i guess it goes back to that thing of like knowing that there's a lot of people in hull that don't actually experience theater or the arts elsewhere so like what they get here is what they understand of it mm-hmm. i don't know I just don't want to sound patronizing when i say that and I don't mean it that way it's just like that's the reality you know there's been points in my life where I've not been able to travel Mm. to kind of see stuff elsewhere so like I get what's on at the Adelphi or what's on at the Ferrens that week and stuff so yeah a real opportunity for us to become part of this touring network where we'd have two festivals a year of contemporary theatre in Hull and we'd get to pick some stuff that was being developed from BAC and they're you know they kind of put the artists at the centre of that work, really, and they don't interfere too much. They kind of let people find out what their work's about over that process. And, I mean, massively influential on me, as like just in terms of seeing loads of stuff mm-hmm. and stuff that's made in a different way to how I would normally work as a writer, mm-hmm. like doing text-based stuff. So, yeah, we've done that for six years, 12 festivals, which is pretty cool, and brought some real weird stuff to Hull and put it on in weird venues and venues that weren't venues and out of that festival created an art or played a part in creating an art space in Hull that wasn't there anymore, Cardoma, you mm-hmm. know. Like, I was in there on my own, like, it was an empty office space that I'd persuaded 
Malcolm Scott the owner to kind of let me have for the weekend mm. to put a play on and I was in there like painting walls black and kind of getting it ready and putting some lighting in and uh, we held some events in there just before our first Heads Up Festival but that wasn't a space at all and like mm. Mal created that space initially for Heads Up to take part in it which is unbelievable so even that is like that's a good good effort isn't it yeah it was Ensemble 52 formed before that or around the same time? Yeah, Andy had, Andy had formed it along with Richard Vigette, who a lot of people know, yeah. uh, who's a writer as well, to create a piece of work for the Wilberforce Bicentenary. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like an umbrella for, for that work, um, which I think was back in 2007. And then I just invited myself to be part of the company in about 2012 because mm-hmm. I was like uncertain about where I was going and sure. I thought it'd be quite nice to work with some kindred spirits. So I just said, right, I'm one of you now. Uh, and then quite quickly after that, we started doing Heads Up. But yeah, an opportunity to bring like people like Jess Tom yeah. to Hull, uh, Victoria Melody, there's a guy called Will Dickey who's been a few times, um, Theatre Ad Infinitum. Uh, we've had we've Alan just had Williams, Alan Williams, Williams came. He did, yeah. yeah, yeah, just some amazing pieces of work and then obviously like loads of content that's produced by makers in Hull and the region uh, that have been part of it as well and then we're part of a network of eight other partners it says the work tours to these other places as well so um, incredible uh, thing to be involved in yeah and one of my favourite things ever was the um, the crazy idea that we could do a production on a train where the cast would join the train (laughs) which was in service yeah yeah and kind of act out because Philip Larkin wrote a poem called The the Whitson Wedding and we sort of recreated that. <laughs> we and did. You, and you wrote a scene for each one and it was just fucking audacious, wasn't it? Yeah, very audacious move. You Sometimes you're that full of confidence that you like these things that you write on the back of a fag packet. You think, yeah, yeah that's, the, that's exactly what we should do without really thinking it through. Whitson Weddings by Philip Larkin is often included in collections of the nation's favourite poetry. It was published 50 years ago and depicts wedding parties on board a train from Hull to London. It's been reenacted today on a train to celebrate Hull's winning bid for city. That Whitson, I was late getting away. Not till about 1.20 on the sunlit Saturday did my three-quarters empty train pull out, all windows down, all cushions hot, all sense of being in a hurry gone. Actor and Larkin aficionado Bill Nighy has recorded a reading of the poem. We ran behind the backs of houses, crossed a street of blinding windscreens, smelt the fish dock, thence the river's level drifting breadth began, where sky and Lincolnshire and water meet. This has all been devised and produced by the whole theatre group Ensemble 52. The writer Dave Windus has put together a series of wedding vignettes, backstories if you like, to the newly married couples we glimpse. In Larkin's poem. You know, we had, uh, was it six couples? I don't know. So a couple got on at every station, didn't, mm. didn't they? And we had like a pre-wedding party in Paragon Interchange. Mm. And then a bit of a sing-song when we got to King's Cross. And um, Bill Nye. Bill Nye recorded some voice for us. Yeah, not a lot of people know. There's two interesting facts about Bill Nye. One that's relevant to this is that, I think, is he chair of the Larkin Society or something? Or is tri- he patron is. or something? He is a patron, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I actually bumped into James Booth, who's yeah. Larkin's biographer, on a train to London last week. And uh, I said, now then, James, how are you doing? And he, he said, I've got no idea who you are. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, told him who I was. I said, um, last time I was on a train with you, I think, was when we did the Whitson Weddings. And he said, oh, yeah, what a marvellous journey that was. 
yeah so we shared a few larkin anecdotes on the train but um i think that's an example of me like realizing like you know the the writer's role in um coming up with something like that is quite flexible really i was kind of a I had to kind of make it cohesive mm. and all the actors had provided me with some material about their kind of hopes, I think, for love and marriage mm-hmm. that I'd then taken and tried to kind of make something cohesive out yeah. of for the journey down to London. Yeah. Yeah, we had a full carriage of of uh, Larkin fans. What That's a daft thing to do. <laughs> and the guy from Radio 4 who came to see us in rehearsals who left us in no mistake that he just thought we were a bunch of chances. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck them. <laughs> we did it. Um, another thing, Bill Nye's a massive Pokemon fan. Is he? Yeah, this is weird. I saw something on Twitter. What do you mean? So there's a Pokemon... Do you mean that thing where people go out with their phones? Yeah, Pokemon Go and just the whole thing. He collect, he's a collector. He's got some really oh, right. rare Pokemon stuff. Cool. And he's well, <laughs> well into it. <laughs> FYI. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with Ensemble 52, you started to produce, mm. which is a whole different ball game. It just seems to me like a fucking... Nightmare, but yeah, yeah, I'm still but waiting. You need, for but you need people to do that, otherwise, things don't get on. Yeah, yeah, I think um, when you think back to the kind of ecosystem that was around the arts uh, when I first started attempting to infiltrate the stage at Old Truck, compared to now, where it's re- it, there's a lot going on in the city and there's a lot of support for people, and there's a there's just so many kind of avenues it would appear to kind of you know if you think right I want to kind of write a play but I've got an idea about how you do that I think you can quite easily find collaborators now to realise that and courses I'm, I'm doing one myself with middle child they're, yeah yeah they're so, doing the second round of those and yeah which sounds like a much more kind of formal kind of thing than <laughs> yeah uh, than my experience as, as great as that was but um there was there was nothing even I'd started working with truck there was no one sort of advising me or offering me a helping hand or it felt like I was very much still on my own so I was still like this kid who was born in a council house like surrounded by theatre people who knew what they were doing but the maybe I wasn't asking the right questions but there was no, there was no information kind of flowing my way so when I was able to kind of <laughs> play a part in establishing some kind of support I think that's where that came from it was like no one else is doing it and I don't want to be one of those people in the city that just complains that there's nothing here. Mm-hmm. I'll do something about it. So I tried to set up some writing networks. I set up a kind of scripting and night at Fruit that yep. we used to do, that we did for three years. And I think the producing thing comes from the same place. It's like, there's no one producing this theatre festival of contemporary theatre. Yeah, we've got a brilliant MPO in Hull Truck, and yeah, we've got companies like Middle Child who are doing their thing, but there was no one doing that type of festival and bringing that type of work to the city. So and it does present opportunities for local makers to get involved. So we have been able to kind of give seed money to some artists coming up, you know, including, like you say, you had, you've had Hetty on this marvellous podcast yeah. talking about Paragon Dreams. There was a previous incarnation of that which Hetty was able to get in front of an audience at Heads Up mm-hmm. as part of the development uh, there, and we've worked with some dance companies to give them the stage to kind of get their work moving and up in front of people. So it comes from that place, really. And th- and thankfully, other stuff's overtaken me. So, you know, there's the theatre network that's been set up by Absolutely Cultured, for instance, which kind of took over from the job that E52 had set up a theatre network just so people could come along and meet. And then I know uh, Middle Child have these kind of acting gyms and yep. freelance meetings. and So we're in a good place now. So mm-hmm. I can kind of go, all right, I don't have to do as much of that now. I yeah. can fuck off and do some writing. Yeah. Tell us about First Story, because I was reading a, a bit about that. And uh, Joe Hakim mentioned it 
um, on his Culture Sean Radio Home side. It's, it sounds amazing. At a time where drama and stuff has been cut in schools, you know, drama budgets and mm. drama teachers have been let go, and yeah. it's all about kind of tech and science, and we understand that, but. Tell us about First Story. Yeah, so there's uh, not a lot of creativity in the classroom, is there? I've been working for First Story, which is a literacy charity that works across the UK for about three years now. Um, And I set up the First Story programmes in Hull in the run-up to 2017. And basically what First Story does, it puts writers into secondary schools for year-long writer-in-residence programmes. So a writer will work with a group of secondary school uh, students for a year, and then at the end the work that's created in these 90-minute workshops, creative writing workshops, will be published in an anthology. And it's a beautiful thing. So all the, all the young people on the programme become published authors or published poets. Fantastic. It's an amazing leg up. And um, so I've coordinated that for two years, and now I coordinate, amongst other things, I coordinate a thing called National Writing Day, which is a celebration on June the 26th every year, or around about that date, um, of the power of creative writing. Uh, so one of the things that attracted me to it initially was I'm a writer, I'd like to run some of these workshops. So got in touch with First Story to suggest me as a writer in residence yeah. and um, they asked me to coordinate the programmes because they realised I'm kind of connected to a lot of writers in the city. And, and what's been great about it is that, you know, let's be honest, it's not easy to work in the arts and pay the bills every month. You know, there's a lot of sacrifices that artists and writers make in order to kind of live this what looks like a, an amazing life if you're outside of it, but you know when you can't afford a loaf of bread or, or whatever, it's not as glamorous as it might appear, or you don't get that break or whatever. But, yeah. um, so we work with some amazing writers, um, but we're providing those writers with opportunities to get paid for the workshops that they deliver. Mm. Um, and you know we flag all kinds of different opportunities to them as well. We get all kinds of stuff sent first stories way. So, and they're all my mates as well, yeah. which is really nice. <laughs> got a weird question I hope it's not weird but um, about two or three years ago was it maybe longer but I saw you and you'd lost weight <laughs> and you'd like had more of a fucking glow about you yeah yeah I mean did you just, just start working well, out or change your diet or just let's face it Matt I was very large a few years ago wasn't I yeah yeah it's, well it's just one of them things isn't it? you go through different ups and downs in life yeah yeah and sometimes you live life in a in a slightly hedonistic way yeah. where you drink a lot yeah. <laughs> and eat a lot of kebabs at 11 at night yeah. so I was doing that and then I just thought I, do you know what I, I wouldn't mind kind of being a bit healthier mm. so yeah so I just got the willpower to kind of walk past the kebab shop Right. maybe don't drink as much as I used to do uh, still got some vices which you know I'm trying oh. to sort out but yeah just altogether being more healthier I don't know about the rosy thing I, I think I think I'm, you know, I'm happy. You know, like mm. I think um, there's uh, there's always upheaval in people's lives, and mm. you know, you, ups and downs and stuff. But yeah, I'm in a really good place at the moment. Yeah, I just thought, I don't know, you just seem a bit more at peace or whatever. Because, like you say, we all go through, and you get to points where you go, I just might need to turn down this way here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you can see the future in front of you, can't yeah. you? And go, yeah. Do you know what? I'll swerve that one. And I think as well, it's just like, I'm getting older, uh, as we all are. But I'm just at that age now where I just, I don't, I kind of don't care what people's perception is of me. Mm. Uh, but I care about me and yeah. like giving, looking after me and giving me a bit of love. So that's important. And and like artistically, like, I, like whereas I think I was just being a pain, you know, as a writer and just like in people's faces and 
uh, being a bit loud and aggressive and you know overconfident or you know not even confident arrogant about stuff and it's like t- turn that down you know you don't need to have it turned to 11 you can be confident don't be arrogant hmm. so like learn those lessons got into a bit of meditation yeah I noticed there's some lovely quotes by Rumi is it, is yeah, it yeah tell us about that because I've never heard about <laughs> this before but I thought they would really well the mutual friend I'm talking about is, is Roy Ruart who's a friend you of ours you um, a show with yeah, yeah, we tried to write a one-woman show for her because she... she well, is Iranian. Iranian whole, British Iranian. Yeah, she's, yeah. she's British Iranian, so part of that generation of people who have got, like, dual identity, really, and mm. that's confusing for for everyone, I guess, and, and, and certainly for those people. So um, just as part of that process, really, I'm really interested in kind of Persian history and heritage mm. and culture, so... Yeah, I think it was Roy who introduced me to Rumi, and then it was like, suddenly the kind of collected works became a book that I started giving to people. Right. Like, I kept buying a copy of it and then saying to people, have you ever... <laughs> so I'd got over this, like, really arrogant kind of, like, I'm an amazing writer, it's so, like, you really need to work with me thing, and then going completely the opposite way of, of like, trying to persuade people they should read this Sufi mystic. <laughs> so I kept giving it away. So I've probably bought about 30 copies of it over the last sort of three years or something. But yeah, it's just beautiful. I mean, it's the best-selling, I think, it's the best-selling poet in America. Uh, but yeah, it's translated into English, obviously. It's really accessible stuff. There's, there's spirituality and nice philosophy for life. Mm. But there's a lot of stuff in there that's about, uh, you know, being in the present and living for the moment and stuff when you kind of wade through it. And, you know, this is the life we lead. God's within us, or, you know, the yeah. light's within us, if it's not a kind of... Uh, God that you believe in but yeah I, I like a bit of breathing but it's interspersed with um, a cigarette now and then <laughs> so, That's kind of breathing. so I need to sort that out I need to sort that out but um, yeah it's good yeah so you get a bit older and you start to appreciate things like trees don't you and, no I think you do and blue well, skies and yeah no you're right I, I sort of sense it in myself a little bit and you do slowly start just to feel a bit of a shift and Moving from one phase to another, sort of slowly. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I was, I've probably panicked as well about the writing thing because I think you're you're aware. I think that you might only have a few pieces of work in you, and then if one of them doesn't catch fire, then you kind of you're gonna have to wait for posthumous success because <laughs> it's not happening. You know, the West End transfer is not going to happen. Whereas now I'm at peace with that. You know, I don't. I, I'm not. You know, I care about my writing, but a lot of my best stuff, I think, is like as as is stuff that I've done at like really weird arts events and mm. things and you know not written for theatre yeah. um, spaces so like you know I've written about vegetables and our relationship to food and I've written some stuff in response to the work of visual artists and things like that so you know we're going down different artistic roads I think and like I mean you know personally I'm like I'm interested in other things so I'm like posting this collection of text kind of slogans on, on my website at the moment yeah, I've seen those. and there's going to be 500 of them right. and and it's part influenced by Douglas Coupland who's a, who's a Canadian um, novelist and artist and part influenced by Bill Drummond who we worked with the last yes. year and some other kind of artistic influences and there's going to be a you can't see it yet but uh, maybe I shouldn't say but there's going to be a, like a narrative running through it 
and I can sort of envisage a kind of exhibition of those. Mm. And I'm also getting into sonic art as well. Yeah, yeah. And exploring that, because I like the immediacy of it. So it feels to me like when I was a kid growing up and I had an Imperial typewriter and I could just type straight onto paper and then you'd mm. turn the kind of wheels at the side and then you'd end it with a piece of writing right in front of you. And there was not no process in between. You didn't have to save as and stick it in a folder and then try and communicate with your printer that had run out of ink. Mm. It just happened there and then. So the, the immediacy of... Uh, Recording sounds is something that I'm really into at the moment, but I've got no idea whether it's just procrastination right now or whether I'm about to take it really seriously and it will be connected to words and text and narrative. But I, I'm just exploring that at the moment hmm. and that will not be anything like a piece of theatre. Or maybe it will, because it needs to be exhibited somewhere, it needs to be experienced, because mm. there's no point just creating it for me, I want audiences to kind of interact with it. But that's that, you know, I'm not, it's the not knowing, you know, what that holds. You know. But is there like a, just a gut feeling that maybe I'll just carry on down this particular little... Yeah, I want to do weird stuff, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't have to write another play, although I'm still doing that as well. And every now and then I hanker after an, an auditorium with velvet seats in it, you know, mm -hmm. which is something that we've not really done anything in for ages. I, I want to sort of finish looking towards the future. Um, we've talked about Cardoma, which has been sort of your sort of HQ, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, We're like crass. We just like inhabited corners of that building. We've yeah. got so much crap in that building, <laughs> and it's like, um, where do we put that? But it's it's under threat, Cardoma. Malcolm is selling up. Um, yeah, it's not been very well, has no, it? No, it's not. And it's one of my favourite venues. I just love that space. So yeah. that's going. Fruit is gone. So in a way, we sort of contracted a little we're bit. Back. We're back to where we were, aren't we? Or you know, maybe in a worse place than we were pre-2017. It's a real shame, but I think... Uh, let's not get nostalgic no. about it, Matt. Let's just think there's loads of empty warehouses in Hull. That's true. And if someone like me can talk their way into a building like 94 Alfred Gelder Street and persuade the guy to you know knock some walls out and stick some lights up for us and and that can happen anyone can do it do you know yeah. what I mean like there's so many empty buildings and there's so many places where you can create work that you can turn over even on a temporary basis to artists mm. that you know let's not mourn a glorious recent discovery of places like Fruit and Cardoma and how many special nights in their short life we've enjoyed you know like I've had some amazing nights in fruit mm. uh, watching you know middle child panthers and weird bands and dancing to Steve Cobby and likewise in fruit you know we've had 12 festivals in there and spoken word nights and film screenings and you know weird stuff so that's, that's possible anywhere you know you can create that anywhere mm. so I think we just need some entrepreneurial spirit from the artistic community to we just need someone to go yeah I'll, you know we can do this mm. we don't need don't wait for it don't for fuck's sake don't wait for you know your national portfolio organisations or builders owners to do it just like get, get the keys to a building and knock some walls out and stick some lights up and Put a fucking show on. And this is one of Dave's sonic doodles. Thanks to him and to Elizabeth and the team at Smashing Mirrors. Break a leg, have a great show. Um, I'll be there on Wednesday 
Monday's sold out, but I think there's availability for uh, for Tuesday and Wednesday, so so maybe see you down there. And thanks, finally, of course, to you for the loan of your ears. Um, hope you've enjoyed this, the ninth episode of the podcast. Now, for number ten, we've got something very special planned. Uh, we're going to do a live chat, uh, an in-person interview in 3D, in surround sound with writer, comedian and Holensian Lucy Beaumont. Uh, and that's before her and Jack Gledo's Edinburgh warm-up gig at Hull Truck on the 11th of July. So if you'd like to be there, it's in the upstairs bar at Truck at 7pm. Um, tickets are free, but you have to book. So please go to hulltruck.co.uk, um, podcast live, and hopefully see you down there. Ta-ra! Been away, but now I'm back. Good evening, Mr. Torrance. It's good to see you. 